Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have an awesome guest. His name is Ryan Paul. He is an epidemiologist and the founder and CEO of Holden Fitzgerald. In this episode, we talk about how building pharmacies in rural communities can can help them infuse more money into their communities, helping communities empower themselves so they can fix their unique problems, how healthcare is just more than your health, and what exactly is health equity. I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I did. Hey, Ryan, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Zane? Nice to, nice to be with you on a Saturday morning, a little coffee talk. Yeah, no, thank you very much for your time. But for those who don't know who you are, do you mind giving us a little background about yourself? Yeah. Um, my name's uh, Ryan Paul. I am a, an epidemiologist by education. I have, over the course of the last 15 years, specialized in infectious disease and pharmacology. It's unusual, right? The epidemiologists are in the, the pharmaceutical space, uh, at least in the pharmacy space, primarily when you talk about outpatient retail. Not a lot of times do you hear... Uh, epidemiology, just because epidemiology is so focused on uh, population, talking about research, the the academic aspect of it. Um, And and so it's always been really interesting to be able to take both the the public and population health aspect uh, from epidemiology and the way in which we research and study epidemics and really apply that that knowledge and kind of that worldview, um, primarily in public health, to the pharmacy space. Uh, I... uh, I kind of have an interesting background. My grandfather was in pharmacy. He was actually one of the early executives of Eli Lilly, and uh, he left there. He was a pharmacist by trade in the late 40s, and uh, he started a uh, pharmacy chain called the Apothecary Shops. It was actually one of the uh, first organizations to actually install on-site pharmacies inside of medical arts buildings um, in the Michigan area. Anyways, the Apothecary Shop ended up becoming one of the larger chain pharmacies in the Midwest. And then in 2000, uh, the apothecary shops were, were sold to Rite Aid. So I've always been around pharmacy. Um, I've always been around the pharmacy benefit management space. I actually went to Michigan State for my bachelor's degree is actually in uh, business administration, management, and finance. Um, and I ended up uh, originally at uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, and then when I decided to kind of transition into the pharmacy benefit management aspect, I ended up going and leading a pharmacy benefit manager for about seven years. Um, and then I transitioned out of that, uh, had an opportunity to invest in uh, a behavioral health business. Um, and then after about four years, we sold that to private equity. Uh, and then I took some time to kind of figure out what the next move was. I started a company called Health Clarity, which a lot of, uh, a lot of folks uh, know. Uh, we sold that July of 2020. Uh, health Clarity uh, specifically commercialized specialty pharmacies that were 340B contract pharmacies at covered entities. So hospitals, systems, health centers uh, that could benefit by commercializing their specialty pharmacy in the private sector market and what we called a pharmacy uh, care direct program. Uh, Again, in July 2020, we sold that book of business. Uh, Health Clarity became no more. And then I took about a year and a half off to really kind of recalibrate uh, and try to figure out what 
the next move was obviously uh, my background, my master's degree in global health. When I when I had gone back to Northwestern, um, I thought that hey, you know, I'm going to I'm going to end up you know in a uh, lower middle income country doing uh, supply chain and logistics, really working in global health specifically, and at that time. Uh, direct care primarily, direct primary care started becoming vogue, um, and we decided to piggyback on that by, by creating a pharmacy care direct program where uh, self-funded employers that were self-funding the prescription drug portion of their employee benefit program could partner directly with covered entity pharmacies um, to purchase under what we call the 340B shared savings arrangement to enjoy uh, significant discounts on primarily their specialty pharmacy. Uh, we had a lot of great success with that. Uh, by the time it was all said and done, we had about uh, 250,000 patients that were purchasing medications through one of our covered entity partners. Uh, and then, like I said, in July of 2020, we we sold that business, and, and I took some time off to really, really kind of figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up, grew up. And I wanted to go back to this idea of global health and global public health, which was my education and obviously my doctoral program in epidemiology, which primarily focused on onward HIV transmission in the global south, at least my dissertation did. And so I wanted to come back and say, uh, you know, what can we do both uh, from a global perspective, which, uh, as you know, Zane, uh, Holden Fitzgerald is a global public health practice, but I wanted to figure out what the, the clear solution for us, um, how we were going to participate in a solution in the U U.S. primarily. And so we created the WellLife brand. And so WellLife is a national pharmacy benefit management firm, a uh, pharmacy management firm, a 340B administrator, uh, as well as an on-site pharmacy solution. And that's really kind of where we shine as an on-site pharmacy solutions for rural healthcare. Um, as you know, there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of healthcare deserts, right, in rural healthcare, and a lot of people are having to leave their communities to get specialty care, and a lot of that has to do with the financial aspect of not being able to, as a rural healthcare organization, support the infrastructure that's necessary to, to be able to deliver the services that are necessary for that patient population, and so we feel like WellLife is a solution for rural healthcare in that space. Um, if you think about on-site pharmacy, primarily 340B contract pharmacy, and you think about all the big players in that space... Um, you know, so the big, the Walgreens, the Optums, the ESIs, you think about really all of the big pharmacy chains that have really uh, helped create this billion dollar cottage industry, which is 340B. And, and obviously a lot of your listeners are going to understand that the fight that's happening in 340B right now, a lot of that, in my opinion, has come back to the loss of integrity in those programs. Obviously, pharmaceutical companies really just feel like the, the spirit of the law that was passed in 1992 by... Uh, by Bush Sr. Uh, and then kind of re-upped by Clinton uh, really isn't being followed, right? That the money that they're essentially subsidizing to these covered entities isn't directly being used to, to fund uncompensated and charitable care in those communities. And so we, we see that being the fight that's happening today. Now, I don't necessarily believe that that's true. I think primarily when you talk about smaller covered entities, uh, smaller disproportionate share hospitals, critical access hospitals, Ryan White clinics, uh, community health centers, rural referral centers. They really rely heavily on 340B funding and that function of uh, collecting 340B savings to fund their programs. But I think that in general, uh, we've kind of lost our way in 340B and we're trying to find our way back. And I think that WellLife uh, creating safe harbor on-site pharmacy for those rural healthcare organizations is a real solution uh, to bringing back a lot of that funding uh, to those organizations. If you think about it this way, uh, 
uh, about 80 cents of every single dollar is going out of the community in that space to uh, pay a third-party vendor for management, administration, and then primarily in specialty pharmacy, uh, dispensing fees to take care of those communities when you talk about specialty pharmacy. So we've really set up in, with Wildlife to bring really Fortune 500 uh, solutions to rural communities, right, so that they are not fleeced anymore and they have the infrastructure that's necessary, um, the buildings, the, the mechanisms, the technologies, so that they can service 100% of the care continuum in those communities and not give up the money that they are giving up to third parties to essentially manage uh, those programs and ultimately dispense primarily specialty medications to that patient population. Yeah, no, that's awesome. But for those who don't know, do you mind defining what 340B is and why it's so important? Yeah, so I mean, the 340B program is uh, relatively complicated once you get into the weeds, but but simply put, the 340B drug pricing program uh, was created by Congress in 1992 through the Veterans Health Care Act. Um, and, and what it does is it requires drug manufacturers to provide discounts on covered outpatient drugs to eligible health care organizations. So it's particularly those hospitals and health centers that are serving a wide population of low-income patients. Um, and so it definitely reaches into those individuals that are uh, vulnerable and marginalized, but it doesn't necessarily have to uh, be defined in that way. Um, so healthcare organizations, otherwise known as what we call covered entities, um, these types of organizations include disproportionate share hospitals, uh, federally qualified health centers, state and local government entities, children's hospitals, what else? Ryan White clinics, STD clinics, TV clinics, um, a lot of different categories. Uh, but the reality is, is that there is a really specific formula uh, that these uh, covered entities meet, and therefore they qualify as what we call a 340B covered entity, and they have the ability uh, to purchase these drugs from the pharmaceutical industry at a deeply, deeply discounted rate in the effort to create that margin opportunity and that revenue opportunity. So essentially what it is, it's kind of like a, a third-party way of subsidizing these not-for-profit hospitals and health centers that are serving this vulnerable population or are serving a large population of, of low-income patients. Um, and so that gives us the opportunity to then look at the, the total scope of what we've kind of talked about bef before this and kind of what we talked about after this in going after that revenue. Yeah, I know. And I think that um, what you touched on is really important, especially with rural pharmacies. And I wanted to touch on something else, like how much money is lost by these hospitals that don't have on-site pharmacies with 340B contracts? So I think that it depends. I think that, you know, if you talk about uh, nationally or generally, um, I think that the larger organizations have the mechanism, financial resources to be able to uh, deploy uh, infrastructure to be able to capture uh, a high percentage uh, of medications in the 340B uh, eligible patient population. Um, and so they're not necessarily losing a, a lot of dollars, but I would say that in, in rural America, um, they're still struggling to create eligibility for their patient population. So in many cases, um, they're not getting any 340B dollars on uh, the medications that are being dispensed in that community uh, primarily because they don't employ uh, specialists. They have physician practices that are private um, that they don't have relationships with. So the prescribers uh, are do not have relationships with the covered entities. And so therefore the, the eligibility uh, scenario doesn't play out. Uh, so therefore 
when a when a medication is dispensed, uh, that three there is no three forty feet clawback. So part of our goal is to go into these uh, rural communities and create el eligibility that should be there, right? And then create the pharmacy mechanism to be able to actually deliver the services that maybe some of the larger organizations that do not exist in those rural communities are currently providing for that patient population. But again, when we look at some of these smaller organizations, we're seeing anywhere from 60 to 80 cents on the dollar. And I'm talking about 340B dollars that are actually leaving that community. They're not actually capturing that money. That doesn't mean that if there's 340B eligibility that there isn't a high capture rate. It's just simply they're not enjoying the savings that's coming from that patient population. And they're certainly not enjoying the dispensing fees that are coming from that patient population because they don't have a really clear strategy as it relates to 340B contract pharmacy. So those pharmacies in the communities that they would contract with to serve the patient population and a large percentage of these institutions, whether it's a community health center, whether it's a Ryan White clinic or a disproportionate share hospital, critical access hospital, or, or any other smaller organization that would exist um, and be considered a covered entity in these areas. Uh, they, they simply don't have on-site pharmacy to begin with. And in many cases, um, that's really about the financial aspect about, okay, we would love to be able to do this, but we can't finance our way out of this. So how do we, how do we get to the finish line? Um, if we don't right now have the funds to be able to take care of what we currently need to be able to take care of, much less expand our 340B program in this small population. You help these um, rural hospitals or rural uh, covered entities um, kind of bridge that financial gap? Uh, so we really feel like we're a, t a full turnkey solution uh, for uh, rural health care, meaning that uh, if a, let's just say a covered entity uh, in a small, I'll give you an example. So we are working with uh, a critical access hospital in um, the Midwest right now that uh, is kind of in a unique scenario. They have a rheumatologist that comes in to take care of a handful of patients at the hospital, but he's driving 50 miles once a week to do medication management. And then they do have some on-site uh, phar pharmacy. They do have an on-site specialty pharmacy to take care of some of the infusion and injectable medications that are dispensed uh, on-site in that outpatient retail scenario. But across the street, there's a medical center and all of those physicians, um, they're private physicians. They do not currently, or they're not currently contracted. They have no physician services agreement with the hospital outside of privileges to be able to, to practice there when necessary for their patient population. And so therefore there's no eligibility, right? So if you talk about just building eligibility, there has to be a relationship uh, between the prescriber, the covered entity, and the pharmacy, and that we'll say that uh, triangle needs to be to be closed and needs to be legitimate, uh, and the patient population that's receiving that 340B uh, drug pricing uh, needs to be the right population. Uh, so there's a lot that goes into being able to to just build that infrastructure, uh, even beyond just setting up an on-site pharmacy. But again, many of the organizations that that we call on that we work with. Our institutions that say, hey, we would love to have an on-site pharmacy, uh, we don't necessarily have the resources to build it. We don't have the money for startup costs. We definitely don't have the staffing mechanisms. So we bring in a full, full turnkey solution specifically for rural health that allows those institutions to uh, receive up to a half a million dollar interest-free loan from us. Um, they enter into a five-year agreement. We build that for them. We operate it. And then our, our goal is to exit after five years. 
uh, with them having a very specific and controlled and consolidated specialty pharmacy and outpatient maintenance pharmacy program that's allowing them to capture at least 80% of eligible claims within their community. And so in this scenario, really what we do is, we, you know, there's, there's, two, there's two independent pharmacies that, that we brought in as, as 340B contract pharmacies so that those, uh, inst you know, so the patient population in this small community can continue to go to their pharmacies. But we did build a on-site specialty pharmacy at this critical access hospital uh, so that a large percentage of the specialty pharmacy that wasn't currently uh, falling under 340B for this critical, this critical access hospital could be captured. Um, and so we did a lot of different things for them. Uh, but the reality is, is that uh, we are operating a powered by well-life on-site pharmacy at this critical access hospital, and then bringing in all the other pharmacy players to really create a community pharmacy program that's supporting not only the, the financial necessity of that community, uh, but attracting specialists um, that are necessary, right? And the bottom line is, is that if there is not medication management going on uh, in the specialty space, a lot of times that comes back to financial resources. I was just having a conversation with someone yesterday uh, about psychopharmacology and they were talking about their lack of uh, a psychiatrist in the community and having a medication manager for individuals that are struggling in the primary mental health and substance uh, use disorder space. Um, and they said, look, we simply can't recruit a psychiatrist to oversee this program because we can't afford to pay the salary, right? So we look at what those psych that particular psychiatrist required, and we said, well, the bottom line is, is that in six months, once we prove out um, the additional revenue that's going to come through your on-site pharmacy and the revenue that's going to come from your contract pharmacy arrangements, you are going to have more than enough to be able to uh, bring in uh, employed physicians to be able to uh, not only take care of this population on an ongoing basis, but to be able to do medication management, right? So when you think about digital thoughts, uh, my digital thought is, is that in many cases, you know, we're deploying our own telemedicine platform to be able to take care of those individuals that maybe live outside of a live outside of a scope where they can just show up to the, the covered entity and have their face-to-face -face consultation within the four walls, which obviously is required for 340B eligibility, uh, to be able to bring them into the fold and give them the care that they need on an ongoing basis when it's not 100% necessary that they show up face-to-face. -face. So there's a lot of tools and resources that, that we're bringing in to be able to do that. But specifically, if you think about you know, WellLife's role. WellLife's role is to build, finance, build, and operate on-site pharmacies for these small institutions. And like I tell people, again, we do have an exit strategy. There's certain resources and services that um, any covered entity is probably going to continue to outsource, like 340B administration, um, the management of the contract pharmacy relationships that that covered entity has within their community. Uh, clinical resources like medication therapy management, drug counseling. Uh, obviously, there's a slew of things that, that fall into that. But the bottom line is for us to be able to walk in and be able to provide not only the financial resources immediately to be able to build that on-site pharmacy so that they're capturing not only more uh, 340B savings, but actual dispensing revenue uh, on-site at their covered entity, and then be able to manage the totality of the relationships with the other pharmacies in the community. And then to be able to back that with a really sophisticated technology that a lot of larger organizations would enjoy uh, is really exciting for rural health uh, because they're simply getting all of that stuff without ha having to 
to come out of pocket for it up front. Now, that doesn't mean that these folks aren't, aren't paying back those loans over, over a period of time. But the bottom line is, is that now we're coming in, we have skin in the game, and we're suggesting that, look, we are going to make sure that this is profitable for you, that you have a a high percentage of prescription drug capture that your revenue is going up. And, it, and it's really just not, it's not just about 340B, right? It's, it's about capturing all of that opportunity and really creating opportunity for specialty care in a community that wouldn't normally have it, whether it's uh, maternity care, right? High-risk maternity care, where maybe right now uh, someone is having to drive 50 miles, right, to someone that can that specializes in high-risk pregnancy, um, that just doesn't make sense all the time. Um, nor do a lot of the, the a lot of the individuals in this population have the ability to be able to do that. So, whether it's maternity care, whether it's some type of specialty care for a chronic or rare disease, uh, a lot of these individuals are having to travel a really long way, right? So, to be able to create this additional revenue for the covered entity, right, to be able to support independent pharmacy in those communities, um, you're just really creating a circular healthcare economy where a large percentage of the money that maybe was leaving that community to institutions that don't exist in that community, um, all of that money can be reinvested uh, in the patient population that exists, right? And I think that that's the biggest issue is, is that a lot of times the money that is being garnered from these programs is not being reinvested in uncompensated and charitable care. I mean, even pharmaceutical manufacturers are making that argument. I don't necessarily, I don't tend to disagree with them in many cases. Uh, because the large, you know, if we look at the amount, uh, the percentage, right, uh, of top line dollars that are going back into uncompensated and charitable care, it is a really, really low number right now. So the question then becomes, is that an irresponsibility of the covered entity? I would say no. I would say that the reality is, is that they're just simply getting by, right, with the 340B uh, drug savings that they're currently producing, the other federal and state grants that they might be able to have access to. And because they have such a patient population, that's you know, they, they can't grow it anymore, right? They can't attract more patients. They can't attract more specialists. So they kind of find themselves in a rock and a hard place by saying, hey, we would love to build this, but we can't build it because right now we're in a situation where we're, we're only sustainable because we've cut costs and we've removed programs and we're not doing everything that we want to do. And so we feel like well life uh, that is really our pursuit is to figure out how we're going to be able to to help them not only maintain the programs that are working for them, but be able to expand healthcare programs that are a real necessity for specific uh, necessity specifically for that patient population that that exists really within a ten to twenty mile radius of uh, the primary health center in that community. Yeah, I completely agree with you, and I want to touch on something that you just said about the circle community healthcare system. There's been a lot of mergers and acquisitions that have been happening recently, uh, some to save save hospitals. Uh, some of them were necessary, but what it's doing is it's taking the community out of the community healthcare system, right? You're having people that don't live in that community making decisions for that community. And this is why I love what people like you are doing is you guys are coming into these communities and giving them the power, giving them the ability to take the power back and go back to that community healthcare system because they know what's what they need, right? And that's one thing that people don't realize is a patient population can be so different, even just from the county next to them, right? 
Yeah, there's no doubt. In the example that I gave you with this critical access hospital, they are affiliated with a organization that has 32, right? 32 hospitals, right? And so, you know, I would imagine that the leadership at the the highest level in that institution is saying, you know, we have to take a hard look at each one of these 32 hospitals and which ones are a non-starter moving forward. And we don't want that, right? Because it's, it would, you know, when you, when you close down a hospital or main health center that's taking care of that population, it's like a manufacturer closing, right? It, it, you're not only creating a healthcare desert, you're creating an economic desert, right? You're creating a, a food desert, right? You're creating food insecurity. So uh, you're creating a lot of issues that, that don't have, you know, don't have specific, uh, specific issues related to the function of managing the healthcare system, right? So the, the question becomes, okay, well, you have a population that's struggling with, with this particular disease state. Well, what's the, what's the origin of that disease state, right? So I'm asking questions, you know, we kind of goes back to this idea that I'm asking questions about not only equity and disparity and social determinants of health, but I'm asking the community about what does that mean to them, right? Because for, for me, you know, when I talk about, I don't even use the word equity specifically. I think the equity is kind of something that's been, health equity specifically is something that's been hijacked and hijacked in healthcare lately. Um, and, and I certainly don't have, uh, I have not lived, I don't have lived experience as it relates to feeling like I've lived in the middle of inequity, right? Um, and I have not, uh, I have lived in, in a world where I've been privileged enough to not have to struggle uh, in certain ways. So I don't have that lived experience. So I don't even tend to use health equity uh, when I'm talking about it, because I don't know that um, without the other aspects, without the equality aspect within a community that you even get to a place of health equity, right? So we have to say, okay, how are these social determinants of health right impacting health disparity so i have a lot of conversation about health disparity because that's in direct relation to clinical outcomes um, and so really kind of defining what that looks like for the community is a really important place to start and then helping them prioritize what 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 is what is the first thing that needs to be done first things first on this right to take care of the the main issues i mean the bottom line is is that if children in a community are going hungry to school right that's a way bigger issue than somebody having to drive 20 miles to see a rheumatologist or an oncologist, right? And because the bottom line is, is people that have access today will continue to have access today. And the reason why they have access is because they have, they are employed. Uh, they are not uninsured or underinsured. Uh, and so again, we come back to 340B, we come back to other federal and state uh, grants and ways in which we can help these institutions improve their funding, primarily through on-site pharmacy and the pharmacy mechanism, which is just for them making more money, right? So that they can take that money that didn't normally exist, right? Because for us, it's, it's a Robin Hood issue. That money exists, it just doesn't exist for them, right? So we have to go out and redirect that money back into the community so that they can deal with social determinants of health, so that they can start to deal with equity and inequity issues, right? And how that's going to translate into improving the, the clinical outcome gap uh, and health disparity in that community. Um, so, but the re reality is, is that, you know, foundationally rural health is really struggling with, I, I believe, at least three to five things right off the bat, you know, and I kind of touched on this before, but it's, you know, lack of resources. So you have rural health centers, 
uh, are typically uh, are, are just lacking the resources that are available in urban areas, and it's making it difficult for them to provide adequate and reliable healthcare services to their patients. Uh, access in general, so there's a lack of access. So in rural uh, rural areas, uh, often just have limited access to healthcare services. So again, deploying telehealth and telemedicine in many cases is going to be really important, primarily if you're trying to fill the gap in specialty uh, while you're trying to get to the finish line of being able to even afford specialties that, that you maybe wouldn't be able to afford as a health institution in the past. Um, limited funding. I think that in the pharmacy side, we're solving that issue, right? Because again, we're not hijacking a program when we finance a program for one of our clients. They own everything and every contract with every participant in that program on day one, right? It's not like we're owning it for the first five years that we operate it and then saying, hey, you have to buy this operation back from us, right? Our our commitment to rural health care is, is that we don't want to own this, right? I, I joke sometimes if, if, you know, some of your listeners know Hinge, right? It's a dating app, right? And the commercial says Hinge was built to go away, right? You know, meaning Hinge wants to work. We want to find, uh, we want to find a long-term partner for you, and then you no longer have to use Hinge the dating app. And I kind of feel like, you know, well, life was built to go away. There has to be an exit strategy for us, or we haven't done our job. Um, so that's really important for us. Uh, but yeah, limited funding, many rural health clinics health centers and hospitals just unable to receive uh, enough government funding. They're not capturing enough 340B savings locally in their community, um, and they're lacking other resources to be able to provide that adequate service to their communities. Um, you know, these are small communities, so you have low patient enrollment, right? So many rural health centers uh, have that low patient enrollment, which limits their ability to provide service to the community and affects their bottom line. Um, another thing is, is that, you know, just in infrastructure in general, when you talk about infrastructure, we can maybe use this as a transition into technology specifically, but poor infrastructure just in pharmacy in general. So the infrastructure in rural communities, again, is inadequate, making it difficult for healthcare facilities to set up modern equipment, uh, modern technologies to be able to provide better care, right? So how the question then becomes, how do we expand rural, rural access to healthcare? Um, and if we talk about pharmacy specifically, there's still some really, really specific challenges uh, that pharmacies face, whether it's uh, increase in DR, DIR fees, multiple MAC lists, just the challenges that these pharmacies have with pharmacy benefit managers, the myriad of 340B consultants, which there's a lot of great ones out there. There's a lot of great 340B administrators out there. But there are so many vendors involved, right? And they are all taking their end, right? And you know, for, for, for better or worse, right? They, they could 100% bring, be, be bringing the value, right, that, that they uh, committed to bringing uh, and are being compensated fairly for it. But the bottom line is, is that if you've got 10 institutions that are taking their end, right, and it's not consolidated, it means you have to take a lot from a very little as opposed to a little from a lot um, to make that profitable. So that's why you see some of these larger institutions are just not focused on rural healthcare because they can't make it profitable because what profitable is for them is not what profitable is for well life saying, right? So if, you know, another example is Southeast Ryan white clinic foundation, 800 patients, um, 250 of those individuals in a Ryan white program, all of those patients were redirected into this case management contract with this not-for-profit. Um, and I use this example in one of our storyboards, but 
they were getting less than a million dollars in 340B savings from their program, right? And there's a huge national specialty pharmacy that was running that program. Uh, they should have been over $10 million after management dispensing fees. That's where they should be. They should not have been having a conversation at the board meetings about the fact that they don't know if their free clinic can stay open, right? So we came in, we, we set up an on-site pharmacy for them. We fired their current specialty pharmacy and, and overnight, they have a 36, their on-site pharmacy has a 36 month projection of $10.7 million, right? And all of that's gonna go into uncompensated and charitable care because it's gonna fund their free clinic, it's gonna fund 100% of copay assistance, and it's gonna go into social programs for, that, uh, for those individuals that are living with HIV and AIDS, right? So it's the social programs, it's upward mobility, it's housing, it's transportation, it's job training programs. It's overcoming food insecurity. It's taking care of the unhoused, right? Uh, we have another program that we're setting up uh, in the uh, Baltimore area right now with a safe syringe program run by a free clinic, right? They've been sending their patients around the corner to a, we'll call it a contract pharmacy. They needed an on-site pharmacy. Why? Because they're giving away money that they could, they could be bringing in-house to use to fund this uncompensated care. And... Quite frankly, there would have been discretionary money left over for them because with their medication-assisted therapy program that they're deploying, um, you know, what's the point of doing MAT? What's the point of getting these people into PHP and IOP programs for addiction treatment if these people are still living on the street, right? So healthcare is such a bigger conversation, right? And if these issues are happening in urban areas where there is the resources and these large institutions are focusing on extracting money because they see the profitability, um, what happens to rural health? Well, they get left in the dust. That's why we see the deserts. and That's why we see people having to travel for care all over the place. And we just don't think that that's right. And there is a solution. It's called bring all of the money back that's being fleeced from those communities back to the community and then create a model, which is the well-life model that takes very little from a lot of different buckets to be able to be profitable, to be able to serve that, to be able to serve that community. And so when you talk about technology, technology is a huge piece of that. But even in pharmacy today, again, coming back to the challenges that just independent pharmacies face with a myriad of issues from you know, multiple MAC lists, DIR fees, negative reimbursement. I mean, you know, you know, I can't imagine uh, as an independent pharmacist today purchasing a drug from McKesson and knowing you're going to get reimbursed from your PBMs less than you're purchasing the drug for. I mean, that's insane. But that's the reality that we face today. So those problems need to be solved. And we think that Well Life has a solution for that. Uh, and again, so as we transition to, you know, maybe talking a little bit more of things that are digital thoughts and technology, it's about talking about how we uh, use technology in rural health to expand eligibility, participation in 340B, increasing funding for rural health programs, obviously launching telemedicine programs in those communities, uh, creating uh, and allowing for more flexibility in the purchasing of, of, of medications and drugs in the supply chain. Um, and ultimately, you know, where we really shine is obviously establishing on-site pharmacies that have the form and function to be able to access specialty medications that they maybe wouldn't be able to access in the past and have a clear line, uh, a clear line and a clear inventory channel for uh, limited drugs, uh, which a lot of these institutions uh, face a lot of challenges when it relates to LDD.
So technology obviously is playing a huge piece in, in all of those in all of those things. And what I would suggest is uh, there's really a handful of things in pharmacy technology that that we're really consolidating. Again, we're since we do management from a bundled perspective, everything that we do is kind of all encompassing. But you know, when we're talking about some of the challenges, you know, and again, I was having this conversation with another pharmacist yesterday, as I told you before we get got on. Um, you know, technological capabilities and, and capacity obviously are impacting pharmacies. Whether it's a 340 on-site pharmacy at a covered entity or an independent pharmacy in a rural community, uh, and it's just happening on, on several fronts. It's you know efficiencies of operations, ability to interact with healthcare for providers and plans. Uh, collection of performance metrics and quality data, patient access. Obviously, technology can help any pharmacy perform with more accuracy, right, and, and enhanced efficiency, and fewer errors, right. So that we're not we're not putting out fires and we're focused on taking care of the patient. Um, and quite frankly, as you know, uh, being an expert in this, today's technologies can enable pharmacies to enhance that quality, uh, create better quality assurance, reduce dispensing errors. Um, boost patient adherence, flag potential um, adverse drug uh, interactions, uh, and synchronize patient medications. Now, you know, your listeners are saying, hey, there are a bunch of organizations that are out there doing it. Yes, they are, right? But they, uh, on, in totality, they're not calling on rural healthcare, right? Because that, the infrastructure for that, right, the implementation alone, the adoption, right, the cost of adoption is very expensive, Right. And so, again, when I look at these large institutions, many of which are either private equity backed or even uh, publicly traded, um, they, they know that these are institutions that are not good prospects for us. So how do we consolidate that mechanism um, so that we're giving these institutions access to automation, artificial intelligence, robotic technologies to speed up workflows, assist MT to assist MTM, drug counseling, measuring, filling labeling, dispensing, and, and all of those pieces, right? I mean, one of the uh, companies that was in the Holden Fitzgerald family before Holden Fitzgerald was a global public health practice. Holden Fitzgerald was kind of the holding company that held on to Stratagos RX, which was our te uh, technology company, Pharmacopia, which was our inpatient psych unit dispensing program, and then obviously Health Clarity, which was our commercialization program for specialty pharmacies at covered entities. Um, you know, we were doing all of those things, but those are inpatient at large hospitals, and they had the, the financial resources to be able to say, yes, we're going to do this because it's going to improve the scenario. And you just don't see a lot of rural healthcare organizations being able to enjoy that for some of the reasons that I talked about before, right? So if you continue on about how technology is impacting pharmacy today, you know, adherence and packaging technologies, um, to boost patient adherence and medication synchronization. Again, great organizations out there that do that, but not consolidating it. May, you know, if all these institutions could come in and say, hey, we're going to do this for you, but you're not going to pay up front for anything. We're going to build something that's going to produce a revenue center, and you're going to use that new revenue to pay for all of those things. That would be a different story, right? But under normal circumstances, that simply doesn't happen. And, you know, we've created a model that allows these institutions to be able to to build before they have to pay for it, right? Because there's got to be money there to be able to pay for these services, and our commitment is to come into these communities and help them. And that means bringing financial resources to be able to, to bring that platform. 
Yeah, and this is why I was really excited to talk to you. I know we've talked on the phone a couple of times before this, and I've always told you that you are, um, I love what you guys are building. And I do want to touch on a couple of points that you had mentioned. These dollars exist, but they're leaving the community. And, you know, there's no shade to the companies that are providing these services. I mean, they're doing it, they're providing a service, but, you know, what you're doing is you're allowing these communities to not only generate revenue, but also keep that money in those communities. So they're able to use it to take care of the problems that they have specifically to their community, right? Like maybe they have a opioid problem uh, in this community, or they might have a homeless issue, you know, whatever, whatever it is, they're able to keep that, they're able to keep that money inside their community and use it for what they need. Right. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate you saying that. I, that, that is what we are setting out to do. And you know, this year, 2023 is the S campaign. Um, I had someone about a week ago say, okay, what's the catch? And to be very transparent, there, there is no catch, right? Um, I have benefited from the other side of that. I have the luxury to be able to build an organization that has an altruistic mission today. Uh, I'm blessed, right? And so, you know, when, we lo- when I look at, you know, the success of some of the other companies in the last decade uh, that I've started, that I've sold, that I've run, um, it's produced a lot, but I don't know that the intent the, what, what was the intention when we started those organizations ended up being that because in many cases when you get private equity involved, right, you're talking about, again, like you said, decision makers that are number one, not a part of the communities that we're serving. And number two, they only see the dollars on the paper, right? It's the it's the we're in, we've been in a spreadsheet era for the last 20 years, right, where you're not seeing the you only see the quantitative and in very rarely are you seeing the qualitative, right? There's certain things that you simply can't measure unless you're in the field on the ground, experiencing the pain, being able to have, take an empathetic position and then say, okay, how can we help? What can we do to serve? Because I'm thoroughly convinced I just turned 41 years old. I'm thoroughly convinced that the money always follows doing the right thing. The problem is, is that we live in some challenging times just in general and obviously the pandemic added insult to injury where great ideas are not seeing the finish line uh, because people can't people can't get there right they just they can't they can't they're, they're, they they burn through their cash before they get to the finish line right and so if i look at you know two decades ago being a part of a system that got in the way of people having access right and then having a for me, and this is where I can get really transparent, is, is I had what I would consider a, an incredible spiritual experience about five years ago. It changed my life. It changed my worldview. It changed my politics. It changed the way in which I viewed myself, other people, and the rest of the world. Um, and I just decided that I was not going to do business. I was not going to do relationships, both personal and professional, the way that I used to do it. And so to turn Holden Fitzgerald into a global health practice, we're doing some really cool things in the global south right now. But to be able to an offshoot of that, to create this well-life brand that says, look, we're going to come in and help you. And the only string attached is, is you have to let us do it, right? You have to let us create a profitable program. And if you let us create a profitable program, we're going to win because we have a financial incentive, but you're going to win because you're going to own it from day one and we are not going to exist forever, right? So where 
we are taking a percentage of revenue or income from the from these programs that we are operating. Uh, and, and I mean operating. I'm not just saying by a farm. I'm not just talking about administration technology. I mean my people in the pharmacy, in infusion centers, actually on the ground, talking to people, talking to community leaders, finding out what the problems are. Because if we're producing this new revenue for these rural healthcare systems, it's not just about sustaining the actual institution. It's about saying, what are the peripheral issues? What are the issues that, that they're facing? Is it children going to, going to public school hungry? Is it um, a, a board that's running a health center that is has no lived experience of the community that exists, right? I mean, maybe in rural healthcare, uh, the board looked very similar <laughs> and thought very similar to the community that they used to serve 20 or 30 years ago. Today, that community is very different and they have no clue what that community, that vulnerable and marginalized community is struggling with. So we just, you know, so there's conversations that happen about what is, what is the board doing? What's the conversation look like, right? Because again, like I said previously, Health equity as a as a uh, as a term, I it's it's hijacked, right? Uh, the bottom line is is we don't have equity without equality, right? And and I don't know what equality looks like for us because we're struggling with that. It, in twenty twenty three, we're we're having some wild, very sad conversations about the state of of our union, right? And so we have to get really honest about uh, primarily public health practitioners like ourselves, and even from an epidemiological perspective, having a really honest conversation about what we need to do primarily in rural health to, to heal this community, right? Because it's not just about, okay, we need an oncology program, so let's create, you know, an on-site oncology program with pharmacy and new specialists. It's all of the other things that go, it's, it's marital problems in the community. It's lack of counseling. It's substance use issues in the community. It's mental health issues in the community. I mean, everybody is struggling at some level with um, happiness, right? <laughs> There's a lot of people that are just unhappy, right? And unhappiness tends to lead to disease states, right? We know that, right? And the United States today is one of the most unhappiest places in the world. And so we have to answer that question first. And that needs to be a part of the conversation when we're talking about infrastructure and technology and more funding resources and more access uh, for the communities that we're serving. You know, again, it goes back to this idea. We have a great medication-assisted therapy program in a big, medic, uh, a big metropolitan area. But if money is not being used to house the unhoused that we're giving Suboxone to, right, to take care of opioid withdrawals, and we're sending them back off on back. We're giving them subs and sending them back to the street. What the hell are we doing, right? What's the point? Um, I, you know. And so again, we have to we have to have those conversations in addition to all of these other things. So I think that you know all of all of these really great ideas, the the consolidation of healthcare economies and rural health, they start to answer some of those really tough questions, right? Because now we can take a step back because we're not worried about money. We're not worried about infrastructure anymore. We're not worried about access because we now have solved that problem. Let's talk about uh, the social aspect of the community and how we're going to serve and improve that aspect of what's going on in rural health. Yeah, I definitely agree with what you just said. I mean, healthcare is so compartmentalized now, right? They say that, oh, you have a problem? Here's a medication. Oh, you have a problem? Go see the doctor. I mean, 
there's more to healthcare than just what happens in our four walls. I had the same revelation that you just kind of mentioned. Um, you know, I was sitting there, I was looking at my patient list and I see the same patient that I've seen come, come into our hospital last eight times, uh, for the same exact condition, DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis. For those who don't know what that is, that's usually when, you know, a diabetic has uncontrolled sugars and it can get so bad to where they can go into a coma and die. So it's a pretty serious, but you know, I'm sitting there and coming in constantly over and over and over again. And the notes are saying that, Hey, um, you know, did you pick up your medications? No. Did you, um, take your medications? No. And like all the other notes are saying that, Hey, we did prescribe the medication that we did this, we did that. But like, you know, it doesn't matter if you agree with this person or how they live, what they're doing. This is a problem. And we're not really solving that baseline problem. This person is going to keep coming back over and over and over and over again until we actually solve their problem. And that's kind of when I was like, you know, what am I doing here? Like, are we actually solving a problem? I came into this profession in healthcare to help people. And I I, don't, I just don't really understand what we're doing. So healthcare should really be looked at as you mentioned, at a community level, you know, it should be looked at at a holistic level. And that's why, you know, when I, I love talking to people like you, because you guys are understanding that and you guys are really looking into it. We need to have these hard conversations now before it gets too late. Agreed. And I think this is probably a good place for me to input kind of what the umbrella is for rural health for us. So we just launched um, our, what we call our chase initiative. Uh, a well life chase initiative and chase stands for community health anchor strategy and execution initiative so the well life community health anchor strategy and execution initiative is our place based approach to building community health uh, so by means of local hiring investing purchasing and community engagement so the implementation of chase i believe and i think our i know my team believes is pivotal securing the funding that's necessary to be able to to finance and take care of to finance the infrastructure and take care of the patient population primarily in rural health but also be able to set up measurable outcomes and find ways to offset uh you know and technology is a good example just to offset the the cost of adoption right it's not just technology adoption it's the adoption of a different way of looking at community health right and this holistic approach that you're talking about um but we've kind of built it into four core components. The first being public health investment. So investing in public health initiatives that ensure access to care, social services, and health educational opportunities. Public-private partnerships, right? So we don't just build an on-site pharmacy, right? We don't just ensure that 340B is optimized to the hilt. We're also saying there needs to be public-private partnerships. So utilizing public and private funds to create local opportunities and help, and help maintain the health economy. So a good example is, is you've got, let's just say, a city, a county, and a public school district, right? All using taxpayer dollars, right, that the community is paying into. It's taxpayer dollars that are paying for prescription drugs for the employees of the city, county, and public school district. Now, you've got an organization, you've got a pharmacy on site that can now service, right, all specialty LDD, and you're in a small community, you can, you can service the drug mix and patterns um, and patient requirements. Why are we buying specialty medication from the specialty pharmacy that's owned by one of the largest PBMs in the world? 
why why is that where we're spending our money? When I can get the specialty medicine now in my backyard and the money that I'm spending, which is taxpayer dollars for my employees of this public sector institution, are actually going to take care of uncompensated and charitable care and a marginalized and vulnerable population that needs those resources. I mean, what a beautiful thing, right? To be able to say, look, we now have an on-site pharmacy or we've got a contract pharmacy arrangement in our community that now can service, right, these self-funded prescription drug programs that are taxpayer funded, right? Why wouldn't that money be used and kept in the community? And it can now, right? Because we're going to bring those transactional services to those smaller communities to say, yeah, if you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in specialty medications by way of taxpayer dollars for your public sector employees for their self-funded prescription drug carbol program, you should be buying it from your local specialty pharmacy from your covered entity, right? And those covered entities couldn't service those accounts before, right? They can now with the well-life model. So I think it's really a beautiful thing because now you have the, the CEO of the small dish hospital that's partnering with the city commission, the county commission, the superintendent and the public school board to say, hey, let's let's keep this circular, right? Uh, we're going to pay into a system. We're going to pay a millage, right, to fund public school. And some of that money is going to go to pay for the teacher's prescription drugs. Let's buy those prescription drugs from the specialty pharmacy that exists at our local health center so that we're paying into our own system as opposed to enriching a Fortune 500 company that's a thousand miles away. So that really takes, you know, so that kind of leads us to kind of the third component, which is collaboration, which for us, it's really important that we develop collaborations and partnerships through a, a multi-sectoral, you know, model uh, for organizations to foster and improve community health. And then finally, it's about increasing transparency. Right, like if 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 Well Life or even Holden Fitzgerald on a global level, if we are bringing, you know, the value that we're bringing is always going to be attached, right, to a financial incentive. Uh, we have to create enough transparency so that there's accountability in the value that's being brought, whether it's vendors that are serving us on the technology side, whether it's claims adjudication, 340B administration, whatever it might be. We have to, there has to be that cushion to be able to say, are we comfortable being completely transparent about where all of the money is going and being able to stand behind that both on the, well, really the payer, the provider side, the payer side, and the patient side to all be really comfortable that we are getting what we pay for. And, and we know that in the U.S. healthcare system, it is set up to, to where right now we are not getting what we pay for ever. It's, just, it's never we're never getting what we pay for, and that's why people are pissed. Here's the problem, though: the very individuals, and, I, and this is I'm going to be bold here. The very individuals that created this problem are voting against themselves, right? So I, I know, and I've been guilty of it. What do we do? We get on social media and we say PBMs are bad, third-party vendors are bad, um, legacy systems are bad. We need new, 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 right? And so you have. A segment of the, the uh, industry that's saying, hey, we're going to come out and solve these problems, but we're going to use the same old tools. <laughs> we're going to use the same old model that is built on a capitalistic healthcare system that is about extraction as opposed to uh, infusion. And so the very people that created the problem are creating new problems so that they can solve them, so they can enrich themselves, right? And that's the problem in healthcare. 
And so, you know, I, I, I'm not, this is not lost on me, nor am I quiet about it ever. It doesn't matter what your politics are. It doesn't matter what governing system you want, right? We know what, this is a constitution, America is a constitutional republic, right? And we are, and we're a democracy sometimes, it seems. But the reality is, is that that capital, capitalism does, in my opinion, my opinion, does not promote the most healthiest of healthcare systems nationally, right? There's a great book that I read many years ago called, uh, what was it called? The he uh, Healing of America. And it was written by this journalist. I think he was New York Times, Washington Post. Anyways, this was a while ago. And he went throughout the world and he had, a, a, I think it was a knee problem. So he went to all of these different uh, systems from Japan to Switzerland to France to go and get his knee taken care of. And he wrote about his experience, right? Now we can criticize, right, socialism in general or the reason why we don't like that, right? But the bottom line is, is that if healthcare is not treated as a utility, there will always be an opportunity for significant extraction and then we get away from the main purpose, right? So there's a guy named, there's a physician named Gabor Mate, who I love, who is a Brazilian pediatrician that really kind of revolutionized the way in which we look at addiction, right? The, the, the seed or origin of addiction is about trauma. Um, but that's not what my point is here. He says something really interesting about compensation in healthcare. What he says is this, there is no reason for a healthcare practitioner to be paid a significant amount of money for doing really great work and bringing incredible value. But there is a fine line between that and a profit-driven, a profit motive in healthcare, a profit-driven healthcare system. A profit-driven healthcare system cannot globally solve that problem, right? Competition, we have competition, right? We keep saying we need more competition. We need the free market. We've seen where that's got us. We've been doing that for 20 to 30 years, right? So the question is not that we create a socialized system, you know, nationally across the United States, but for us, when we talk about our anchor base or anchor strategy or that place-based approach is to say, look, all of this, all of this opportunity needs to stay within the community, right? If you think about politics, say, you know, the, the politics and the decisions that impact us on a day-to-day -day basis, they happen at a local level, right? Those are the ones that impact us directly and on a daily basis. You can argue in Washington about things till you're blue in the face. Many of these things, not all of them, there's some really big ones that are impacting us today, but a lot of the, the ancillary stuff, they don't impact us on a daily basis like local politics. And so I believe that part of that anchor strategy, that place-based approach, is about localizing patient care, right? It's about saying we have the ability and the talent to be able to do that, so let's start there and keep the opportunity within the boundaries of this community so that when we need this extra funding resource, we have the discretionary income to do it because we've built what we need to actually gain that additional revenue. And we don't have to outsource that to a well, we don't have to outsource that to Wall Street anymore. We don't have to outsource that to a specialty pharmacy a thousand miles away. Who's making, you know, there was a good example of that Ryan White program that we were talking about. They were losing two and a half million dollars per 150 patients on specialty pharmacy. 
two and a half million dollars in Ryan White Part A and B and 340B in federal and state grants for PEP and PrEP simply because they didn't have the infrastructure to do it themselves. So somebody else was taking 80% of that and giving them pennies on the dollar as a thank you for letting us manage your program. That, again, that's insanity to me, right? Yeah. That is crazy. I agree with you. I think healthcare has been turned into a business, but um, it isn't really a business, but on the same in the same breath, we need to make money. And I think that, you know, people like you are doing a great job by teaching these communities how to be self-sustainable. You know, it's like that old proverb, give a man a fish, eats for a day, teach a man to fish, uh, they eat for the rest of their life. Programs like this are allowing these communities to grow and flourish and, you know, develop healthy communities. And hopefully we can get to a point where we're all living healthy and then we can argue about the dumb stuff later, right? Yeah, no, I, yeah, you're right. It absolutely does. And, and what I would say to that is, yes, healthcare can, I, I think that healthcare can be a business, right? It's just what kind of, what kind of business? I mean, Holden Fitzgerald, Well Life, we are a for-profit business, right? That's okay. We don't have to be a not, I, I know we compete against not-for-profits that are the ones that are fleecing certain populations, Right, and I won't say their names, but there are huge ones that are not for profits, not just not just your managed care organizations. I'm talking about in the field not for profits that are using the system to enrich themselves. So it's not about not for profit and for profit. It's about motive. Yeah, it's always about motive, right? Because the reality is, is if if our organization can be profitable, right, and it is, and we're taking about sixty percent less than what our competition does in totality, in compensation, yet my margins are probably just as good as theirs, then my question is, where's the money going, right? How, where, where is, where's the distribution of that happening, right? What's the value of that? Um, and the answer is, in most cases, there is a, uh, the value of what an organization is bringing is not equal to what they're being compensated. And so I just want us to have that conversation because when people enter into an agreement or a contract with us, I want them to feel really good about it. I want them to know, like, look, once we've partnered with WellLife, yet we still own our own program, and they're helping us build this, I want them to feel really, really good about their decision. So that means not, not only me personally, but the team and our strategic partners have a huge responsibility to deliver on multiple fronts to, to meet the requirements that are necessary, not only for our anchor-based placed approach strategy, but to simply improve access, funding, other resources, to improve health disparity, clinical outcomes, and then ultimately to be able to focus on what's creating sickness in our community. Because it starts somewhere. And, it, and in, in a lot of cases, we didn't just wake up with a chronic disease, right? There are other issues that are going on, right? We, we, our life is not going as well as we wanted it to, and now we're using unhealthy ways to cope with that situation. And over years, that is creating new issues. Many places in the world are not struggling with that. We are. So what's the difference? And that's the question that I want your audience to continue to ask. What's the difference? Why are we struggling with something that other countries aren't. And I believe they're gonna to come to the same conclusion. 
regardless of what side of the, the fence they fall on, <laughs> as it relates to their worldview, their politics, legislation, the way in which they think the healthcare system should look, there is, there is some equality or understanding of equality that drives us to ask a question of what's different and when we don't, and what we find out is, is that the actual problem is also the solution, right? And if we are taking a problem and not solving that problem, but creating new problems so that we can kick the can down the road and solve those problems and then charge people for solving those problems, then we've solved no problem at all. Yeah, I don't really have anything else to add to that. And I think that's a great place to uh, end it. Um, so, Ryan, if there's anyone that wants to reach out to you, what is the best place to do that? Yes. So if they want to connect with me, uh, my I'm obviously on LinkedIn, uh, Dr. Ryan Paul, L-M-S-G-H-C-I-C, or they can go to WellLifeRx, that's W-E-L-L-Y-F-E-R-X.com. Um, and check that out. Or otherwise, if they're interested in our global public health practice, they can go to holdfitzgerald.com. Or you can always get one of our customer service reps through our email, info at holdfitzgerald.com. And I'll have all that linked in the show notes below. But Ryan, uh, thank you for your time and thank you for the amazing discussion.